Now, Holy Spirit, we pray that you will come and that you will breathe life into your word to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, we celebrated Pentecost Sunday, the day when Jesus' ministry on earth was completed by the sending of his Holy Spirit upon his disciples, the day that Christ's church was born. And we also celebrated Ella's baptism, and we reflected on how baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. It represents union with Christ in his death and resurrection, how her immersion in the water outwardly signified the inner reality of her death to sin, her rising again out of the water inwardly signified her birth to a new life, a life of righteousness. Last week, we also celebrated that God fulfills his promises. He fulfilled his promise to send the Holy Spirit. And we reflected on how at baptism, God promises the forgiveness of our sins, as well as that in baptism, through faith in Christ and a gift of the Holy Spirit, we're adopted as God's children and heirs and are made members of Christ's body, the church, so that baptism signifies our initiation, our welcoming, into the church. And essentially, that baptism signifies that through Christ we are given a new status, a new family, and a new future. A new status, being forgiven and reconciled with God, a new family adopted as God's children, welcomed as members of Christ's body, the church, and a new future, a transformed life, no longer a slave to sin and death. And for this, we praise God. Last week, we also looked at the Lord's Prayer, the closing of the Lord's Prayer as we closed our series. We did a lot last week. I might have tried to fit too much in to one week. I do get overexcited from time to time. But as we came to the closing of the Lord's Prayer, we looked at the closing doxology. That tradition is added to the prayer. We reflected on how, as J.I. Packer has famously said, the purpose of theology is doxology. And we saw this to be true as Jesus' teaching on how to pray teaches us about God, the response to which can only be praise, giving God the glory because he does rule over heaven and earth and has the will and ability to provide for the shared needs of his people, his children. And so now we have come to the end of our shared journey through the Lord's Prayer, and we turn to the beginning of something new as we prepare to embark on another journey. Now, after spending a lot of the year, since September, going through three series, the Ten Commandments, the Beatitudes, and the Lord's Prayer, I think it's a good time to return to our lectionary. And so this summer we're going to do that, and we're going to turn our focus to the Epistle Readings which will lead us on a guided tour of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, also known as the Book of Romans. Now, there are many who argue that this letter is the most influential book in Christian history, making it perhaps the most influential book in the history of Western civilization. This Book of Romans, this letter is divided into 16 chapters for us. It only takes about an hour to read through in its entirety, if anyone wants to get ahead, uh, get a good foundation of what's going on. However, despite this 
many do tend to avoid it, apart from a few favorite verses or passages, because it is quite dense in a very good way. And I, I got a good taste of that already this week, of just how deep and rich it is. As I began my exegesis at the beginning of the week, I was immediately struck by how much has been written on almost every verse, on almost every word. So rather than any sense of mining for gems in the dirt, I hope we can all look forward to a bountiful harvest from some very fertile soil. Uh, also, don't expect to get through the entirety of each passage. Uh, we're about three verses this week, and that's, that's quite enough. It's, it's, there's a lot going on here. The letter was written by Paul, as, as we know, and when we first encounter Paul in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, as many of you are aware, we're told that he was present and even approved of the stoning to death of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. At that time, he was going by his Jewish name, Saul. He was a Pharisee. He was passionate about God's law and living according to it, word for word. And he saw the Christian church as a threat to his status, his people, and his way of life. So he persecuted the church. His goal was to eradicate the church completely. However, God had different plans for Saul. And he encountered the risen Lord on the road to Damascus and was converted. He was transformed. So that instead of feeling threatened by Jesus, he accepted him as his Lord and Savior. And he was given a new status. He was made right with God and forgiven for all the crimes he had committed against Jesus and his followers. And he was given a new family, the same church that he had been persecuting. And he was given a new future, a transformed life as a leader in that church, arguably the most influential leader in the church's history. And to demonstrate this transformation, he took on his Roman name, Paul. He'd been granted Roman citizenship at birth, because he was the son of a Jewish Roman citizen of Tarsus. So Saul's plan was to eradicate the Christian church. However, God had different plans for him and used him perhaps more than anyone else to build it. Paul became a leader in the church, even appointed as one of the 12 apostles, and wrote numerous letters to numerous churches to teach them to answer questions that they had, as well as to address the many issues that they encountered. Believe it or not, even the early church had quite a bit of conflict, division, over various differences of opinions, whether theological or otherwise. Not much has changed, and so Paul's letters still apply to us. Paul wrote his letter to the church in Rome quite late in his life, in AD 57. This wasn't one of the churches that he had planted himself, had founded himself. It wasn't even under his technical jurisdiction, under his official leadership, although we do see that he knew some of the people in the church. We're told of at least 26. And we told, we're told he wrote his letter from Corinth. And he wrote it to address three issues. One was preparing the church for a visit from another church leader named Phoebe. Two was preparing the church for his own visit. 
Uh, he was hoping that he could come and get them to help him prepare for another proposed mission to Spain and plant some churches there. And third was to address a concern that had been brought to his attention about tensions between Jewish and Gentile believers in this congregation. The same thing we hear him address in a number of other letters to other churches. The church had been in Rome for quite a while. They'd been planted and founded by both Jewish and non-Jewish believers. However, history tells us that at one point, the Emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome. Then five years later, they were allowed to come back, but when they returned, the Jewish believers found that the church was now not very Jewish at all. It was very Roman. It wasn't observing their practices, and this led to an argument between the two groups about whether Romans needed to adopt the practices of Jewish law. They were arguing whether following the Old Testament law was necessary to be saved, to be justified, to be made righteous. And the tensions and emotions had mounted, things had got a bit ugly. So Paul was writing to them to help them through this because he knew this division wasn't what God wanted. He knew it didn't glorify God, that God wants unity. The letter Paul wrote can be divided into four sections, uh, as we will be going through the highlights of these sections together. And the first talks about God's righteousness and how this has been passed on to us through Jesus. The second talks about how through this God has created a new humanity with a new status, a new family, and a new future. The third then addresses how God has fulfilled his promise to Israel. So that the fourth talks about how this unifies the church, the Jewish and non-Jewish believers. All of us are one. And woven throughout all of this, connecting and unifying it all, is Paul's in-depth exploration of the gospel, the good news of our salvation through Jesus. And this is why Paul begins his letter as we find in Romans 1, verse 1, with the greeting, remembering in those days they didn't write to whom, but rather from whom. So Paul begins his letter, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And then he begins this in-depth exploration of the gospel and in the first two chapters of the book leading up to our reading today, Paul reminds the church that we are all in the same boat. That all have sinned, Jew and Gentile alike, all people, all nations, are trapped, jailed in sin. And Paul points out that while Israel was chosen by God and given the law, the revelation of God's character of who he is, and tasked with being a light to the rest of the world, they failed. And this means that they are just as guilty as the rest. Now, I don't know if anyone here enjoys watching courtroom dramas on uh, TV or Netflix or, or whatever it may be. But when I was growing up, I used to like watching the show called Matlock starring Andy Griffith. I don't know if any of you have seen it. We watched that. It was the only thing on at 8 o'clock on Tuesday nights. 
on our one TV channel in South Africa. But Matlock was a defense attorney who was tasked each week with defending some innocent soul who had been wrongfully convicted, usually, or charged, usually, with murder. And I remember spending every episode, every week, trying to figure out who the real murderer was uh, from the weekly list of viable suspects with viable motives. But it was always impossible because the writers never gave us enough information or evidence to make an informed decision. And as the trial progressed, every week, without fail, the poor defendant looked hopeless, like they were going to be convicted until, like clockwork, with 10 minutes to go before the end of the episode, one of Matlock's team would burst in miraculously in the nick of time with some crucial bit of evidence, and this would exonerate the defendant. And this is the mood that Paul creates in the opening chapters of Romans. He even uses quite a bit of legal terminology to illustrate that court is in session. All of us are standing before the judge about to be pronounced guilty, although we are not wrongfully charged. But after two chapters of this bad news about our sinfulness, about God's condemnation, we get to today's reading where Paul bursts in with this dramatic, but now. And he shares the wonderful, incredible news that someone has arrived on the scene to exonerate us. We are all guilty, but God sent Jesus to save us. That's the short version of the gospel. Our kids could probably preach it better than me. But Paul dives quite a bit deeper in order to explain why and how this plan worked. He says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. Paul's explained the way things were, that all of humanity could not make ourselves not guilty, innocent, righteous. We can't bust out of jail by following the law. None of us can succeed at following the law the way God requires. But now, Paul explains, a new era in the whole of human history has been unveiled through Jesus' incarnation, life, death, and resurrection. Because Jesus' incarnation, life, death, and resurrection further reveals what has already been revealed about God and his righteousness in the Old Testament. It's just giving us more, and we see, oh, it was already there. And Paul explains that in this new era, our guilt versus our innocence, our righteousness, is apart from the law. It's not based on the law. It's not based on human obedience to the law. It's not dependent on our human performance. We're not saved by our works, what we do. And it's especially meaningful that Paul is the one sharing this. Because if we remember, he used to be a Pharisee who was so passionate about going above and beyond keeping every letter of the law, he was willing to kill for it. But Paul also explains that he isn't now doing a complete 180. He isn't just ditching all that he used to believe and hitching his horse to a new, different wagon. Rather, he explains that it has now been revealed that the Old Testament, the law, and the prophets actually point to this 
happening. They bear witness. They testify to the coming of this new era in salvation history. Paul continues in verse 22 that the whole Old Testament teaches that this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ and is offered and available to all who believe. Here's something else we'll see about Paul, which is frustrating when you're trying to write a sermon. He goes back and forth to what he's talked about before and comes back. And so here he goes back to remind the church that it is given for all, including Jews and Gentiles, that there is no difference between Jew and Gentiles. Something he then continues later in verse 29 when he says, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God. Paul reminds his Jewish readers that God had revealed himself to his people, the people of Israel, the Jews, to be the one and only God. So Paul argues if there is only one God, then he must be the only God of all people. And so he must also be the God of the Gentiles. It's the kind of argument that would make Ben Matlock proud or any lawyer. All people are the same. We're in the same boat. But Paul explains that this also means that all people, including all Jews and all Gentiles, must approach God in the same way, on the same terms, through Jesus, not the law. And this statement directly challenged those who were arguing that the church needed to adopt Judaism and its legal practices in order to be saved. Paul reminds all the church that no one can claim righteousness based on his or her obedience because no one is obedient. And he states very clearly in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all guilty. But, Paul shares the incredible gospel news, we are all justified, declared not guilty, declared righteous by our divine judge, freely, but only by God's grace, the unmerited, unearned mercy that he shows us. All are justified freely by grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. This word redemption is common in the Old Testament and generally refers to the freeing of a slave. But this freedom always involved the paying of a price. And we see this in the book of Exodus when God freed Israel from slavery in Egypt and the price was paid of the blood of the Passover lamb as well as the firstborn of Egypt. So Paul shares in verse 21, the law and the prophets testify to this righteousness of God. And a perfect example of this is how the New Testament does reveal that Israel's redemption from slavery in Egypt through the blood of the Passover lamb and the firstborn of Egypt does point forward to the greater redemption from slavery to sin and death that Jesus won for his people through his blood, his death on the cross. Paul continues, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. The Greek word that Paul uses, hilasterion, 
is translated in our NIV Bible as a sacrifice of atonement. But it's also commonly translated as propitiation, which is a word some of you may recognize from our prayers during communion. Propitiation means, I'm not going to ask, um, <laughs> propitiation means the satisfaction of God's wrath. Jesus' blood propitiated or satisfied God's wrath. Why was this necessary? It wasn't just because we needed to get God to calm down. He wasn't losing his temper. God's wrath is justified by our sin. God is justifiably angry at sinners, his children, who have rebelled against him and cut themselves off from everything he offers, all the blessings, all the goodness, the life that he gives. And God's law requires a price to be paid for the crime that has been committed, for our sin. Again, we might ask ourselves, why? Why couldn't we just not worry about it? You are God. You can do anything. The Old Testament law emphasizes God's justice. That is a part of who he is. He is a just God. And recognizes that as a just judge, he can't simply acquit the guilty. He can't just ignore our sin, sweep it under the rug. That would be unjust. And believe it or not, even in Paul's day, there were many who questioned God. Why does God do things the way he does them, not the way I would do them? And they questioned God's justice because of how often he was known to have shown mercy. There were many learned men, many rabbis, who thought they were being clever by asking the question, how can I believe in a God as the utterly holy one when he tolerates human sin? When he shows mercy without inflicting full punishment. It's kind of the opposite of the question we hear so often today. How can I believe in a God who does punish good people? But Paul explains that both these questions are answered through Jesus. God's righteous anger did need to be appeased before sin could be forgiven. So God, in his love, sent his son to offer his life and blood instead of ours to satisfy God's just wrath. And Paul explains in verse 25, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Jesus' work on the cross was God's plan all along. And God knew his own plan all along. He knew that the full payment for the guilt of sin would be made through Jesus. And because of this, he was able to show mercy even before this happened, even beforehand. And so in this way, Jesus' work on the cross justifies God's actions through history. And through this justification, we can see that even though we might still have questions about why God does things the way he does, he has the answer. And it may not have been revealed to us yet, 
It took thousands of years before this new era in salvation history was revealed to the world. And so there may be things that confuse us, but God knows the answers. God is in control, and we need to trust him. Jesus' work on the cross demonstrates God's righteousness. Because through the cross, God's justice and mercy are reconciled. They're no longer at odds with each other. This is the heart of the Christian faith. That at the cross, God's justice and love meet. And because of this, though we are guilty, by believing in Jesus, by trusting in him, to take away our sins and accepting that forgiveness, we may be declared not guilty, setting us free from the jail in which we find ourselves, giving us a new lease on life with a new status, a new family, and a new future. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that you have a plan for this world that goes far beyond our lives. We recognize that you know what's going on and you have the answer to all of our questions and that one day they will be revealed to us. And so while we confess there are times we get frustrated and confused, we thank you that we can put our trust in you as our Father in heaven who is in control and is just. We thank you also that you are merciful and that though we deserve to be declared guilty because you sent Jesus, we have been redeemed, we have been set free, and that because of this you welcome us into your family. We thank you for your love. In Jesus' name. Amen.